Hello, my name is Curtis Merriweather Jr. You are listening to the Business Theologist Podcast. This podcast is for new and seasoned business professionals looking to uncover knowledge gems. This podcast is unlike other business podcasts because we endeavor to create a synergistic relationship between business, management, scholarship, and theology. In addition to being an executive leader, I am also a doctoral candidate. The insights shared on this podcast will give you an edge over the competition. Whether you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or executive leader, or someone looking to change careers, I invite you to travel along this learning journey with me. Buckle up and let's get ready for the ride. Let's go. Thank you for joining the Business Theologist Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Man, we have a special guest for you. But before I get into that, I just want to encourage you to subscribe and share the podcast and leave a comment so other folks just like you can find this content. Well, I don't want to belabor it. Let's talk about our special guest, Ted Ladd. Dr. Ted Ladd is a professor of entrepreneurship at Holt International Business School, teaches strategy and economics to graduate students in San Francisco. He is also an instructor at the Harvard University and the Copenhagen Business School. His research optimizes methods for designing business models for new ventures. And he has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, and several academic journals and conferences. He has participated in five high-tech venture capital-backed startups, primarily focused on mobile electronics. The most recent where Ted created an ecosystem of developers, resellers, and technology vendors was acquired by Google as the foundation of Android Wear, which powers smartwatches and other gadgets in the Internet of Things. He was a Ph.D. from the Case Western Reserve, an MBA in entrepreneurship from Wharton at UPenn, an MA, a Master of Arts, with honors in international economics from SAIS, at John Hopkins and a BA cum laude in biology, government, and technology sociology from Cornell. He sits on several public and private boards, mostly relating to economic development in his home state of Wyoming. He was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to teach in the Philippines, multiple research grants from the National Science Foundation, and four best professor of the program titles over the last two years at Hope. He is going to wow us today. I already know we had a pre-conversation before. And I'm he's going to drop some knowledge gems on us today. So, Dr. Ted, thank you for joining us today. How are you're you welcome. You're welcome, Curtis. But up until you just said that, I especially looking at your bio thought that you're pretty smart. The way that you just set out that expectation, I'm now questioning your judgment. <laughs> let's see. where Let's see where this goes. I'm sure. This is going to go just fine. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with. An easy question for you. A lot of our audience may or may not know who you are. Um, they're going to have a better appreciation for who you are after our conversation today. But just starting out, who is Ted Ladd? Oh, boy, you didn't ask for this, Curtis, but I'm going to start here. I am a husband and a son. Wow. That's the first place. Like, forget platform entrepreneurship. Forget academia. The thing that gives me joy the most in my life is being married to my wife, making her happy, making, letting her make me happy, and then being what I hope is an attentive, kind, thoughtful son to my parents. And the best way I can reflect the importance of that back is to start my identity there. 
That's amazing. So that just that just speaks to the type of person you are that you would even start that way. So humble. That's that's amazing. You know, you have a very and I do mean very, you know, I'm sure when I was reading your bio in the pre, you know, kind of warming up for this call, I was just super impressed. But I'm, the first question I'm going to ask you is there's a couple of things I think very interesting in your background. But when did you first get bit by the entrepreneurship bug? Oh, that's it. the reason that's a tough question, Curtis, is because I don't know what the entrepreneurship bug means. Doing something totally different and following whims as a kid, and I can talk about that in a second, but starting a business, that's a different aspect of entrepreneurship, probably the more business formal way that you and I think about it. But when did I first get bit by doing something totally different? Yeah. When I was a kid, I was born and went to school in Massachusetts, but I started going out west to Wyoming as as a kid in a summer camp when I think I was 11 or 12. And I declared I was going to spend as little time in Massachusetts thereafter as possible. Literally, I moved residence the second I had discretionary power to move residence. And I told my parents when I graduated from high school that I was not interested in going to college. Instead, I wanted a cowboy for the rest of my life. And my parents did the exact right thing. They said, good luck, but you can't stay here. So they said, if you're going to do it, you got to see what the life is like, what the rewards are like, what the money is like. How are you going to sustain yourself? So I took what I thought was going to be like to them. I was saying, hey, I'll take a year off between high school and college. But to me, it was saying, I have a different path I want to consider. I went to, so I worked in Wyoming for that for that summer and then we got 15 feet of snow in Wyoming so there's no ranching to be done there in the winter time so I went to Australia for six months um, or to be more accurate six months two weeks in a day and the reason I know it was that long is because I was working so hard I was exhausted physically hard it was 112 degrees in central Australia and I had half a day on Sunday afternoons to read a book, but otherwise you're moving all the time. You're not thinking that much. You're just moving all the time. So I got back after six months, two weeks in a day and said, oh my goodness, I have to go to college. Like I can't rely on my body forever. I love the lifestyle. I just can't make this a career. The good news for me then is when I went to do an uh, undergraduate interview at Cornell University in upstate New York, I walked in and uh, they had lost my luggage on the way up. It was one of my first plane travels, which sort of just, I booked a ticket and I got all the stuff ready and I put all the, my suit and all this stuff in the bag and they lost my luggage on the way up. And it was uh, no big deal, but I showed up to my college interview for a place I really wanted to go to school. I loved it. Wearing cowboy boots, jeans, t-shirt, red lumberjack shirt. I think I had a cowboy hat on. And I said, I am so sorry. I meant to show up in the way that I think you want me to show up. And that led to a spectacular conversation about what it means to be a cowboy in the middle of nowhere, what it means to be a pioneer, what it means to be totally self-sufficient and self-reliant. And as a result, they let me into Cornell University which was absolutely the best place for me to study. Middle of nowhere, because I like that. I'm not good in cities. And they have seven different undergraduate colleges at Cornell, and I took courses in all of them. I was random, random stuff all the time. And then after a few years of working, when I went to do an interview at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania, I walked in and it was a student interview. And he said, please, I don't, I don't think he said this out loud directly, but it was pretty close. He said, please, I hope you're not a consultant or an investment banker because I'm so sick of those people. And I said, what a coincidence. I don't know anything about consulting or investment banking. He and I spent an hour and a half talking about how you trap and track grizzly bears, wow. where the how you use guns in the right way and traps and how you take biological tissue samples and blood samples, because that's what I had been doing in Wyoming for part of this. Right. And what do you know? University of Pennsylvania said, okay, that's different. Let's see how that goes. In other words, 
these crazy paths that I've followed because they were not because they were uncharted, but because there was an interest, a possibility, something um, adventurous about it has led me emergently and incrementally and every step of the way to these spectacular, probably totally undeserved opportunities. And each one leads to the next one. If you had asked me when I was 12, what would my life look like? I probably would have said I'd have a really nice horse tied up in front of the cabin in Wyoming. It has not led that way at all. Wow. That's amazing. That is an amazing story. Now you just got me telling stories, Curtis. No, no, that's good stuff. I mean, it it, it provides provides perspective. I mean, because you have done already some amazing things. So, you know, we're going to get into your platform entrepreneurship conversation because that's really what got my attention. But I mean, some of the stuff you've already done, you know, you were the director of ecosystems at WIM Labs, kind of talk, which got bought by Google as part of their foundation for Wear OS. I mean, where did that platform background even come from? So at its core, I worry, by the way, Curtis, that I have a button on my forehead that says platforms are right next to it, a button that says professor. And if you push both of them at the same time, I get really boring and pedantic. So you tell me if I'm starting to drone here. At its core, a platform, it's a business model, and it's an incredibly popular, powerful business model. Airbnb's IPO last week was through the roof, most valuable um, launch in anything in the hospitality industry. And it didn't rival the Saudi Aramco IPO of a couple of years ago, but that's because it's Airbnb isn't sitting on a, bear, a field of oil. Airbnb owns no real estate, and yet its platform business model created huge value. So that the business model is interesting. We can talk about some of the theories around that, but at its core, a platform connects people. It makes it easier to connect people. It reduces the coordination cost for people to offer value and find value. This is what I have been enjoying for my entire life. When I meet people, I don't want to have a cocktail party conversation. I'm not interested in that. Instead, I want to say, who are you doing and what are you doing? And can I be of assistance to you? And can you be of assistance to me? And who do I know that you might also want to know so that your lives will be different? Many of my friends call that the lad inquisition because they know that buckle up because we're not going to have chatter about the weather. Some of them, for some of them, it's exhausting and they run the other way as a result. Um, That connection is at the core of platforms. And that's what I've been studying and trying to do for most of my life. Did you know that's what you were doing? I mean, because that was a new term for me, platform entrepreneurship. No, no clue. When did you realize what you were doing? When I was, my first job out of business school was with a company called Palm. We made uh, the Palm Pilot handheld devices. We were the first company who really made handheld computing. And my job there, when I first arrived, there was, was awesome hardware, interesting software. And we were just starting to see if developers wanted to build what now we call in the vernacular apps. Like nobody called that. The word app was an application and that meant something totally different to engineering software geeks. And we said, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if we could offer that to people and like reduce the coordination costs for software developers to provide something to people who owned a Palm device without having to, for us to build it. So there were, when I joined, I think I was employee number 500 at Palm or something like that. I think it's already a pretty, pretty big company. There were two of us who did anything to do with developers. That was it. And we were making it up. How do you do this job? No idea. Let's figure it out. There weren't that many app promoters and developers. This was simultaneous with um, Guy Kawasaki doing evangelism for the Macintosh. And there were some powerful people doing uh, evangelism for the Microsoft operating system focusing on enterprise. But those right for the Mac or writing for Windows, that requires a huge investment of time and knowledge and specialty. Writing a tiny little app for a Palm Pilot, this was the first time a guy in or, or gal in their back, back office could throw this together in a couple hours and offer it out to millions of people. So that is a platform. Palm, yes, we have hardware and software, but mostly we're connecting developers to consumers. 
That was when I started to understand the formal possibilities, like the, the theories underneath this and the practical implications of this. That's what got me incredibly fired up to do this as a career. All of my jobs since then, all of my, and mo- 25 years in Silicon Valley, um, all of them have been in some way or another focused on making platforms connect buyers and sellers. I'm not a coder. I'm not even really a salesperson selling a product or a service. I'm the guy saying, wouldn't it be cool if you made something for this platform and that other people could then come to the platform and use? Wow. That's amazing. It was, it was so incredibly fun. Um, my job during our Palm went public. We spun, well, we spun out of 3Com. 3Com was a big networking company that happened to have purchased Palm when it was tiny and didn't know what it had. Literally bought Palm because they had some spare cash. It was like, we don't know what this thing is, but here we go. Um, on the day we IPO'd, the 3,000 people at Palm had a more valuable company than the 30,000 people at 3Com. Everybody did fine. And during the IPO, my job was to be the company spokesman to talk about the future of handheld computing. What could this platform do for you sitting in your living room? It wasn't a financial conversation. It's not even an operational conversation. It's not even a technology conversation. It's a human empowerment conversation. Wow. That was, it was a blast to do then. And that has been sort of my career step. The companies get smaller, the possibilities get larger, and the um, companies get smaller because now that I'm getting a little bit more experience, I can join and be of service to companies that are smaller and smaller and smaller. Wow. So we met at Case Western. So people on this podcast have heard me talk about Case Western. I love my school. We met last, actually, get my dates wrong. That was in the spring. You taught a teaching course at case for the PhD program, the executive doctoral program. And at that time I learned about your involvement with Holt. I always said the name wrong. Holt mm-hmm. at Harvard. Yeah. When did that Holt and Harvard relationship come post case Western pre case Western? When did that occur? Um, so let me just also just make that do the formal thing here. I am a professor of entrepreneurship at Holt which is a business school focused on master's students. And we have campuses in San Francisco, Boston, New York, London, Shanghai, and Dubai. And I get to move across all of these campuses whenever I want. Well, not whenever I want, when they ask me and when I can fit it in, but mostly I'm the dean of the San Francisco campus for Holt. And we typically, COVID notwithstanding, have about a thousand master's students on campus. I'm also the, I'm also the dean of research at Holt. So my job is to help the 400 other members of faculty across the world do more and better research. And then starting today is Wednesday. Uh, no, we actually, we announced it about a month ago, but we'll have some interesting new marketing materials dropping on Friday. I've created a doctorate of business administration that we're going to start offering at Holt that will compete directly with with the DBA at Case Western. And this is only in case my peers and, and beloved professors and administrators at Case hear this, this is only out of fondness and respect for what you did when I was in that program that I wanna do it for a larger, larger global audience. That's pretty so nice. That's, so that's Holt. Um, and we're, we have, because we have all of these independent connected campuses, but separate sites, we graduate more MBAs and master's students every year than almost any other school in the world for in-person learning. Wow. Up until COVID, we didn't do online. And when COVID dissipates, we hope to have people who are hybrid. So sometimes in the classroom, sometimes online. So it's a pretty big school and we're probably... Oh, I think the Economist had us at 38th in the world for MBAs. So we're sort of globally recognized, but still expanding and growing and figuring out where we can differentiate and where we can improve. Our emphasis is on global education. So 95% of our students are not American. Wow. So when I go into a classroom of 70 people, it looks like the United Nations. 
there are people sitting next to each other whose countries have been at war for centuries and who are on a team creating new ventures and figuring out how once they graduate and they go back home, they can maintain these business connections. That to me is the way they maintain cultural connections, the way we improve human connections. Right. So that's, that's the job at HALT. The reason that I went to HALT was because, right as I was starting the case degree. I had, was teaching at a small business school in Seattle, just on the side. I was working in Silicon Valley, but just for fun to it, this was like, I started to look at top tier business schools that do not have tenure. I don't believe in tenure. I'm an entrepreneur. So the idea of a university giving a job for life to a professor is antithetical to who I am, to what I've done, to what I believe, to what I think is good for the institution, to what I think is good for the professor, to what I think is good for the students. I don't want it. HALT was one of the higher ranked schools that doesn't have tenure for anybody, doesn't allow it. We will not have it because we don't think it's good. It's, it's, not, it's not a good idea for anybody. So that's so I looked at HALT before I even started the program and then I networked my way into a teaching job at HALT and over the last several years, um, I've had a spectacular time. I've met some, well, I teach maybe five or 600 students a year. I've met some spectacular, incredibly fun, ambitious students who are changing the world. And I get to watch them do it. I tell them at the end of every course, I'm going to claim credit for what they did. But they, everybody knows I'm just the guide to point out to them what could happen. And then they decide to adjust their ambition and reach for more. So um, it's been a fantastic career. I also, though, want, and I advise this to any teachers out there, I want to teach at multiple institutions. How do different institutions approach pedagogy? How do they approach administration? How do they approach um, student recruiting? How do they approach the setup of a course? So um, every year I try and teach at some other place. I taught at the Copenhagen Business School for a couple of summers and loved it. Um, HALT is kind enough to let me teach for um, a little while on the side. And then about three years ago, Harvard asked me to join them to teach a summer course to master's and PhD students at Harvard on platform entrepreneurship. Those students are incredibly smart, unbelievably well-prepared, ambitious, articulate. The difference, you didn't ask this, Curtis, but now- but this is good. Then this is good. The, the difference between a Holt student and a Harvard student, students who go to Harvard already have a pretty spectacular life and their trajectory is upwards. And I'm not, I'm not changing that trajectory most, that much. Like I hope that I'm teaching them some theories and getting them to apply these theories in order to learn new skills, but their lives are going to be just fine even if I'm not at, at teaching them at Harvard, they're fine. For HALT, if I do a good job, I can see these students shift their expectations for the impact they could have in the world. I literally get to watch that light bulb go on two or three times every single day that I'm in the classroom. I'm shape, at least I, 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 just, I, I tell my wife I'm changing their trajectory. I take credit for it, but I get to watch them, their trajectories change in front of my eyes. Wow. Not only is that incredibly empowering to me over the long term, but minute to minute, day to day, I get up every single morning and go to work at Holt because I know I'm going to have an impact today. And then when I get up early tomorrow, I'm going to have an impact tomorrow. Wow. I can't imagine a better job and a better place to do this. This is my life's dream. And I can't, I hope that um, this doesn't get back to my bosses. I can't believe Holt is foolish enough to also pay me to do it. Because if they sent me a note saying, we'd like you to continue to do all of this same work, but we're cutting your paycheck to zero, I'd probably still show up tomorrow. Wow, that's amazing. That means the coaches, they've done something right at Hope. We get to create the culture. There is no institutional inertia about the culture. The 400 members of faculty, we decide year to year who is on the faculty and what would we like to become and what do we want to change about what we did last year and what we would like to do differently next year incrementally. We as a faculty 
decide how we want to change. So wow. we create the culture explicitly and with intent and with sort of deliberate care that it sometimes gets in the way of day-to-day craziness of teaching and adapting. But that is our intention. And I think that that happens much more so at, than at any other school where I've either taught or studied. Wow. We get to create what this education is going to look like. This was not on my list to ask you, but I'm going to ask you because this is a great conversation because you talked about the pedagogy. And for those who may not know what that big word was, can you explain what a pedagogy is? Then I'll ask you what my question is. Pedagogy is how do you teach? And let me tell you the huge shift in pedagogy. It's almost like a philosophical shift. Up until, boy, for many professors, up until a year ago, the way that we thought we had to teach as professors is We stand on a stage, we have a bunch of students all out there looking directly at us, and we talk to them as though we're repealing back their skull and pouring knowledge. That's a professor-centric pedagogy. That's the philosophy around how we taught. Look at all of the pictures that you see from schools. It's a professor standing in front of the room, and literally, it's the front. I don't think that works. And I have been working for years to change my pedagogy and HALT has been working. We all are working to change our pedagogy to a student-centric pedagogy where students are working with each other to make, to, to learn skills and to apply. We built classrooms where there is no front of the room. If you walk into the classroom, there are eight screens around the edges. There is no podium. There's no center. Students get together in groups of two, groups of three, some student on the corner of the room can pop up and say, hey, I have something I want to say, and they can share their screen from their laptop across all of the other monitors in the room. The way that I know when I'm working, when I'm being successful in a student-centric classroom is that they forget I'm there. They are so involved in the discussion. Now I have to leap in, not leap, I have to guide subtly every sort of 10 minutes saying, yeah, that interesting question, but how about if we go this direction? And then I call on people who normally would be quiet to say, what do you think about this? Or how does this compare to what you already have experienced or that you've learned in theory? So I'm guiding this, but they don't need me there. They learn faster when it's a student-centric pedagogy. And even more importantly, they're going from content to skills. They leave the room not knowing, not just knowing more, but being able to do more. That's pedagogy. And that's the shift that we're seeing across the world. The reason we've seen this shift faster is because during COVID, you can't lecture on Zoom. It's hard. Yeah, people are going to give up. And Zoom also makes, with breakout rooms, Zoom makes student-centered pedagogy even easier. So I think we're seeing a long overdue shift in how we as professors choose to teach. That's an amazing, I mean, I took took your your class back in the spring. So I just didn't want the the listenership to be confused by that term. But the question I want to ask you, I mean, you've been been to some, some great institutions. Why is the entrepreneurial education, and this is my own personal bias, failing to equip entrepreneurs? Oh, there are a couple different reasons for that. Let me give you some of the standard reasons that I think I've heard. Um, and then I, I think some of them are right and some of them are wrong. Okay. One is that um, schools that focus on entrepreneurship focus too much on theory. Here is how you start a business. And all of the businesses I've started, all of the businesses I've participated in, all started differently and evolved differently and grew differently and failed differently or succeeded differently. So saying here is the way it is done isn't helpful. There are best practices. There are best, and it's not the best practice for what the, what the business should become. There are best practices for the process by which an entrepreneur can determine what is the best business model that will most deliver value to the customer. There are processes for that. And indeed, What I just said to you is a piece out of the abstract for my doctoral dissertation case. Uh What's the best way for entrepreneurs 
What's the recipe? The the most the recipe that's most likely to lead them to the, the good idea. Not what is the best idea. What's the process by which they can find the good idea? That's where educational institutions can help. It's not theory. It's not quite just application, like come up with a good idea, pursue it, call me when you need me. There's something in between about focusing on process and teaching students the skill to apply the process and then let them pick what are the inputs, what could the venture look like. That's a piece of it. There's another piece here around entrepreneurship where I think schools are particularly important for teaching entrepreneurship, and that is around risk taking. And then to be actually, to be even more specific, it's the myth of risk taking. Lots of people look from outside of entrepreneurship and say, those people take crazy risks. I can never do that. I'm not creative. I'm not risky. I'm a cautious person. I don't want to do it. Good entrepreneurs do not take risks. Good entrepreneurs reduce risks before they leap. They find the sector that is unfulfilled and verify that before they offer a product. They figure out a way to offer that product incrementally that does it very slowly, that preserves time and capital to make sure this is going to be a good idea. The reason that educational institutions can be really good at that is that a class on entrepreneurship is an incredibly safe, guided place to experiment with that kind of evolutionary unfolding. What's the worst thing that you could happen in, in, a, in a class on entrepreneurship where the task is create a new idea, pitch, pitch it to some people, and tell me what happens? The worst thing that can happen is you get a B or a C. Like, who cares? That's right. trivial. There's not much money at risk. And you have a guide to say, oh, you're about to make a mistake. Turn left by a little bit here. And that's what the professor's job is, to, is, is for that. So it's that kind of shift that schools can provide in understanding that entrepreneurship is a path that is available to anybody. Everybody can be good at entrepreneurship if they can figure out the right processes, the best, most, um, the optimal processes to find incrementally the right idea. Wow, that's good stuff. On the heels, so so many questions that I that were not on my script are coming up because this is a great a great conversation. Um, when you talk about strategy from an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, you got a few competitive analysis by Porter, you got blue ocean. When you start talking about entrepreneurship and strategy, I kind of want to hear your thoughts because you said something that I think was key that I don't know if people heard. You said entrepreneurship is not about taking a risk, but risk minimization, which I totally agree with. So when looking at minimizing your risk from an entrepreneurial perspective, how should you look at strategy? Should you look at the economic perspective, like you know what we learned from Porter, or should we look at a blue ocean strategy? What is your perspective from that, from a strategy perspective for budding uh, entrepreneurs? All right, Curtis, this is another warning. Like I got the professor, I got the platform, and then next to it, I get the researcher on it. And you've also just pushed another two buttons. So if I get too pedantic here, rein me back in. Lots of the formal frameworks in strategy are only interesting for big companies that are trying to compete against other big companies. Porter's Five Forces, which is perhaps one of the better known strategy analytical tools was, by the way, not invented to help big companies steer around other big companies. It was invented to understand why do some industries consistently make more money, have higher profit margins than other industries? Why is the airline industry have a consistently different amount of profit than the automotive industry? That's what Porter was trying to do. Right. We, as a business community, have abused what that initial framework was meant to do to say, here's how this company could go do something different than its competitors. But mostly, strategy is for large corporations to determine what they want to do, not just based on customer demand, but based on competitive pressures. That's a game we got to play. Entrepreneurs don't. Entrepreneurs don't have to say, wow, when I get big, what am I going to do to combat other people who are big? That's not the challenge for an entrepreneur. For an entrepreneur, it's saying, how do I find some customers who, are, who have a problem where current substitutes 
are not fulfilling that problem? Or how can I solve that problem? Cheaper, different, deconstructed. Like there are lots of different sort of processes and potential avenues for that, but it's not around corporate competitive strategy. That's not the problem for entrepreneurs. It's around understanding where is customer demand. And Blue Ocean is this idea that you can take, um, and for those of people who aren't familiar with this, this is the, in a couple sentences, Red Ocean in this sort of metaphor by Kim and Maborn, who are two professors out of IMD, um, they were saying most companies fight with each other over the same customers. And that ocean is red with the blood of competition and warriors. And therefore, they're saying, go to a part of the ocean that doesn't have competition in it. In other words, why compete? Why don't, why don't you go someplace else where there is no competition and see if you can establish a new product line there? That's interesting. The problem with that idea, and this is I'm oversimplifying, and I'm sure that those two authors, I've seen them refute this idea, so I'm oversimplifying. I'm taking poetic license here. The problem with that idea is what happens if the – what if the ocean is blue? In other words, there are no competitors there because there's no customer problem. Or the idea that people have come up with in that part of the ocean, those ideas are stupid and they failed. So avoiding right. competition is not the answer for an entrepreneur. The key is saying, is there a different way for me to solve this problem or even better? How do I solve this better, better than substitutes? Now, what's the best way to do that? The first thing is don't build anything yet. This is the pro this is the mistake that way too many entrepreneurs make. They wake up at two, like this is the midnight epiphany. They wake up at midnight and say, I just had a great idea. And the first thing they do in the morning is go prototype it or call the engineers and say, build this, build that, or go to the workshop and start making stuff. Don't build anything yet. Building it isn't the problem. The problem is, am I solving a problem that people have? How many people? How well am I solving? That is, and this particular area of entrepreneurial thought is typically called the lean startup method. One of the, to me, the even more, the deeper thinkers for this idea is Rita McGrath out of Columbia Business School. And she talks about discovery-driven planning. And she's been talking about this for 15 years, well before the lean startup method started to sort of gain popular attention. Her work is saying, here's how you do it. The end point, she said, isn't, that's not the goal. It's not to maximize the end point. How do you make sure that you are constantly embedded in your process, listening to what customers want, seeing if that's really what they want, or if that's just what they say they want, and incrementally giving them, them what they want. That's discovery-driven planning. Wow. That's the process that I think is the, that's the recipe for success. For entrepreneurs. This also means that 80% of entrepreneurs out there have an idea that's terrible and they should stop. That's, a, that's an awesome lesson, right? Entrepreneurship is not how do you always create something new. Entrepreneurship is about how you always create something that's valuable. And sometimes if you're creating something that's not valuable, stop. Right. Do something else with your time. You know, I think most entrepreneurs have a difficult time knowing when to throw in the towel. We get tied to our idea or our mousetrap or our service offering. And sometimes it's hard for us to pivot. Do you find that? Oh, there's this interesting trap, Curtis. And I'm guessing you and I have fallen into it a lot. And this is actually an er interesting area of research. And I don't know how to solve this problem. What is the right balance between, for an entrepreneur, between flexibility? Okay, somebody said something to me and I should go in a different direction and grit, which is somebody said something to me and I'm going to ignore them and keep going in my same direction regardless of what they right, say. Right. Another way to put this in more academic terms, the Lean Startup Method advises people to go out and have interviews with customers to figure out what's like directly, not surveys, not secondary market research, go out and talk to the people who have a problem that you're trying to, or you're trying to address it. And the Lean Startup Method doesn't say, here's how many interviews you should have. At one point, I was talking with Steve Blank, and um, who is one of the sort of the fathers of the Lean Startup Method, uh, and I said, he said, a hundred, a hundred is the right answer. And one of his peers was there and said, no, I think the answer is eight. Wait a minute, a hundred and eight. 
as in eight interviews versus a hundred interviews, that's a huge gap. One of you is very wrong. Right. And we talked for a little while and drank some beer. And the, and the conclusion was you probably have to do a hundred interviews because the first 92 are going to be terrible. You're going to be asking leading questions. You're going to be saying, Hey, you have this problem. Don't you? And everybody's going to say, Hey, you seem like a nice guy. I'll say yes. Even if I don't have the problem, because why not? So in other words, only the last eight interviews are going to provide objective, unbiased data for you to consider. You don't need very many of those. We still, however, as an academy, as entrepreneurs and people who teach entrepreneurs, people who do research on entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship, we don't know when you should stop. Either stop doing, stop doing testing, either to say this product is done, I'm going to call it quits and go move on to something totally different, or this product is good and now I'm going to launch. We don't know, but the answer is there. And there's hot debate on this all the time. I don't think we're ever going to find a definitive answer like 17. I don't think that's ever going to come up because everybody starts with a different set of questions, looking at a different problem with different celerity, uh, severity, talking to different people who may or may not experience that particular problem acutely. So there is not going to be any answer, but unfortunately, that's a problem. There is not going to be any answer. Uh, agree. And if you talk, ask a researcher, they're going to say you keep asking until you reach saturation, which is a big fancy word of saying until you keep hearing the same reoccurring theme over and over. But if the thing's wrong, <laughs> it doesn't help your problem either. I went to at one point, Curtis, I, um, I was asked, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough, honored enough, just good dumb luck to be granted a Fulbright scholarship from the U.S. State Department to go teach entrepreneurship in the Philippines. Okay. And, um, and we were talking with a bunch of students around about this customer development, about the lean startup method. How many interviews should you do? And they were being, I, I was, so I was literally with a class of people saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think? And it became clear that in Filipino culture, being polite is more important than being accurate. If you ask them a question, they're going to be unbelievably polite and say, yes, I agree with you. You seem like a really nice guy. I would absolutely buy that even if they wouldn't buy it. In other words, doing customer development in the Philippines is a different problem than doing customer development in rural Wyoming, where people are going to tell you within seconds exactly what they think about the idea, and they don't really care about what you think about them. So even if we find the right number, what we think is empirically the right number, this is going to vary by culture that's what i mean by sample um so there is not going to be any answer here wow okay we'll take i'm gonna take a slight pivot you spent a lot of time in silicon valley so uh, i was talking to norris kruger a couple weeks ago and he has an investment banking background so i'm gonna ask you i got funny i love that guy being a guy who spent a lot of time around silicon valley what is your advice? And it can be random, but what is your advice to entrepreneurs seeking venture capital? I've been seeing a bunch of entrepreneurs these days. Everyone's trying to get a venture deal, whether that's series A, those are different rounds of funding. They're trying to get friends and family. Everybody does their friends and family raise or their 401k or whatever investment vehicles they may or may not have. What advice do you caution entrepreneurs when it comes to seeking venture capital? Should they don't, should they not. So don't. do not don't for a couple different reasons here. The first is that um, too many, especially for my students who are coming from all over the world to Silicon Valley, they think that the sign of success isn't the launch of the product, that the sign of success is the landing of the venture capital deal. That's not a good milestone, right? That's, that's not, don't spend time trying to get a few, um, and this is, I, I worry, I think that this is accurate and well-reported. A few middle-aged white American males in Silicon Valley who control most of that venture capital money for them to agree with you. That's not a representative sample of the rest of the world, the rest of the customers in a particular market. That's not the people that you should be trying to impress. So spending time chasing venture capital means that you're not spending time figuring out how you're actually going to solve the problem that the customer has, which means that even if you land a venture capital deal, 
maybe you're heading in the wrong direction, but it means that you've changed your identity, your metrics, your desire for impact, your desire for transcendence, which is what are going to people think about your space on the planet, even if they never know your name or can't remember your face? What do you do when you leave us that other that will help other people? Venture capital thwarts way too much of that. The more I spend in time I spend in Silicon Valley, the more I am convinced that venture capital is at best a necessary evil, but at worst, a huge distraction. There are only a couple types of companies that need venture capital. And typically, they're those that involve hardware. Like you need a certain amount of fixed investment. You can't build. There's no such thing as incrementally testing your way into a new nuclear reactor. Can't do it. You got you to put, put a whole bunch of ideas and test ideas separately, but then you got to build the whole thing. That takes a ton of money. Hardware is expensive. Software, unbelievably cheap. So the only time I think entrepreneurs should be contemplating venture capital is when they are growing so fast and they see so many opportunities. They already have revenue. They already have customers. All of their hypotheses about value are already proven. And they're saying, I could grow twice as fast if I go for venture capital. And even then, I think entrepreneurs should pause before getting in venture capital. There's a huge price to that growth not just a price for having to give parts of the company away to venture capitalists in return for the growth, but growth, uh, the, the pursuit of growth can hurt people. It can mm. hurt customers. It can hurt entrepreneurs. It can hurt staff members. It burns them out. It causes divorce. We started our conversation with my declaration that my identity is first as a husband. I have seen lots of things that have the opportunity for growth. And I've passed on some of them. The reason that we left, uh, we left Silicon Valley for Palm was that my, um, am I allowed to swear here, Curtis? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I was working for Palm. We had this big IPO and I came home one day and I was moving around the country, moving around the world. And we had all this money coming in and I was a rock star. And I came home one day to San Francisco and my wife said, you know, you're kind of turning into an asshole. Wow. Three weeks later, we were gone. Like I, that's not the person I want to become Absolutely. rich and a jerk pales in comparison to just fine, well off, but the kind of person that you want your spouse to like right. venture capital is a brass ring that to me is dangerously seductive. Wow. That's strong. Too, too much. No, no, that's I good. Have, because I have lots of friends, by the way, who are, who are venture capitalists, and they're doing the best that they can to accelerate impact. So they're not trying to distract anybody. And they're smart people who are offering great guidance. And I still think that the entrepreneur falls. It's too easy to fall into that trap, even if most venture capitalists are caring, warm, thoughtful people. No, I agree. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, the audience should really pay attention because you have founded, you've led, you've secured funding, you've sold a couple of startups. So to hear you say that kind of been there, done that, I think it, it it's powerful. It, it says a lot. Now I have to switch. We talked about this just a little bit when we got started. You ran for, you ran for the house in 2004 in Wyoming. And then yep. shortly on the heels of that, you were nominated and you won the Wyoming 40 under 40. So talk to us about you've had business success um, and what made you in 2004 decide I'm going to run for the house, U.S. house? Uh, yeah. So this is Wyoming sends one person from our state back to the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. We only have one. Okay. Only a few other states only send one. And I'm trying to think off the top of my head who it would be. Um, I don't even know off the top of my head. But we are, this is one person goes. And um, prior to me, for example, um, former Vice President Dick Cheney had been the U.S., the representative to U.S. Congress. His daughter, Liz Cheney, is the current member of Wyoming who represents us in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I looked back in 2003 and said, the federal government, means well, but it's not helping entrepreneurs. It's investing its time and its resources in policies and projects 
that are for big companies or they mean to help entrepreneurs, but they keep whipsawing the rules so much that we can't figure out what the steady possibility is. And to me, that was and remains a huge problem for American competitiveness. If we think that capitalism, or at least enlightened capitalism, right? Capitalism with respect for each other and dignity to each other, combined with democracy, which we now can see is more fragile than we thought. If we think that this is the best way for people to self-organize, entrepreneurs provide the engine for that. And I was worrying, I worried that we were starving the engine. So I decided instead of just complaining from the outskirts about Congress and reading the newspaper and saying, what a bunch of idiots, I would get in there and see if I could propose other ideas, if I could basically put my time where my mouth was. And I spent a year doing it, drove 45,000 miles. Um, I lost. I am a Democrat. Well, I don't really know what the party labels mean anymore. So let me let me get away <laughs> from the party labels. I believe in fiscal conservatism, spend less money as a government, and social liberalism. You get to choose your identity and your behavior. I, those are my two beliefs. So I don't know which party right now holds those. I kind of think neither, but that's a different, that's a different yeah. conversation. So I said, I'm going to get in there and do it. And back then in Wyoming, that meant that I was Democrat. Wyoming is incredibly not a Democrat yeah. state. Um, but I figured, you know, that the point isn't to win. The point is to run. Right. So I gave it a shot. I lost. The final results were 55% to the incumbent who had served already 12 years in the house from the Republican majority party. And I got 42% of the vote. And then the libertarian got three. Love that guy. Um, so I lost. The conclusion that I had from that though, is if my goal is to help entrepreneurs do better, there's another way to do this. It's help entrepreneurs. It's teach entrepreneurs. It's come up with cool platform ideas that are a way for entrepreneurs, an individual app developer in their backyard to find interesting ways to add value to other people. What I have since determined, and maybe this is, um, maybe um, this is post-facto justification because I now teach entrepreneurship and I teach uh, and I serve in a school that focuses on entrepreneurship is that I think that teaching and helping entrepreneurs is 800 times better than anything that I could have achieved if I had won that election and if I were serving in Congress. The answer for entrepreneurship is not policy. The answer for for entrepreneurship is other entrepreneurs. Wow. You know, one of the things, I forget what class it was. We were taking, I think it may have been Mohan's class. I don't know if Mohan was teaching collective action when you were there. And we learned that policy basically is responsible for creating monopolies and oligopolies. I found that to be very interesting. They raise or either lower the barriers to entry. So, yeah, policy always messes everything up. But. Well, the, the problem with policy is that um, politics always lags economics. Always. Always. And it, 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 frankly, it should lag, right? I don't want all of a sudden politicians trying to figure out. I don't want them getting out in front of economics right. because that leads to a declaration that this is the way to go and this is the type of industry or the type of business that will be successful. So we're going to fund it. I think that that leads to huge amounts of wasted money and huge amounts of foiled ambition. So I'm glad politics lags economics. The problem is that sometimes politics lags economics by so much that by the time politicians arrive with regulations, they're hurting the economics. Correct. And that's, I don't think that that's, it's not through bad intention. Um, it's perhaps through poor structure, maybe bad history. I'm not sure that there's a solution for that. I just know that my solution for that is not to engage in politics. My solution for that is to help entrepreneurs directly, both as an educator with global students around the world. And I still spend a fair amount of time helping entrepreneurs in Wyoming. Wow. Wow. Because I, I saw that you are 
pretty big at the uh, SBDC, the small business. Oh, I don't think I think I don't think big is the right word there. But yeah, I'm the so every state in the union has a an arm of the small business administration right. called small business development centers. And these help entrepreneurs with some of them. Sometimes it's basic skills. Sometimes it's grant writing skills. Sometimes it's access to federal contracting in Wyoming, because we don't have that many entrepreneurs, the small business development center in Wyoming, but gives free advice and consulting to first time entrepreneurs. People who just have an idea can walk into the office and say, how do I know if it's a good idea? And what do I do now? Frequently, the advice is lean startup method, customer development, don't build yet. Let's wait. But that sounds like a bad idea. So stop. Like that's, Those are all useful pieces of advice. I'm the chair of the advisory committee okay. for that in Wyoming. And I've been on that for well, 15 years. It's important to me, both for the function and the structure. How do we make sure that those kinds of services remain. Now that's a tough fight right now. Right. Wyoming right now is we're like all of the other states in the union, we are suffering from fiscal shortfalls. So that's an interesting conversation we're having right now about where that service should fall in priority with all of the other things that the state of Wyoming is trying to deliver. I'm delighted and honored to still be in those conversations and seeing if I can raise the flag and wave the flag entrepreneurship i mean the sbdc's are are that's important work now i have to not, not be biased but some states do a better job of it than others based on the staff that's there so yeah. when you see entrepreneurs i mean truly have been in the fight got in the helm not just textbook entrepreneurs but have really been in the fight i find those offices perform better and they normally kick out a better product so i think staffing is key but i get it you know we're all trying to figure out how to manage those tax dollars to properly deploy those funds. Yep. Can be tough sometimes. It's tricky to find people who are both entrepreneurial and willing to work for the state or federal government. Very true. That's true. That's true. Very because true. Where, where, where for them, stability is important. Right. I've relinquished stability a long time ago as an entrepreneur. Like that which wasn't, wasn't going to happen. You have um, to. Or at least it wasn't going to happen by design. If it happened as an, uh, as a, happy coincidence that was great but not by design you know entrepreneurs i always tell them because I, I do a little bit of mentorship as well um if you can get entrepreneurs delivered from that that nine to five w2 crack call a paycheck <laughs> you can liberate them but that is the i think that's the plight of an entrepreneur is getting them away from the first and the 15th or the seventh and the 22nd or every other week whatever that paid it schedule is to chase that dream. It's, it's hard. It also, I'm going to go back again to where we started. Um, it could be to personal circumstances. And for me, my wife is incredibly stable. She hates change for mm -hmm. her. She, her, she says it's all about expectations. And she means that for her, that she, once she has an expectation, she absolutely, her happiness depends on having everything proceed to that expectation. She is not happy when I yank her all over the world for different teaching gigs or trips. Like she's not happy. Once we get there, she's happy, but she is incredibly stable. That means that we're a great fit because she brings me back down from making too many stupid, I too many stupid mistakes and crazy ideas and saying, Hey, let's go to Kathmandu today. Cause I think that there's an interesting business possibility there. She's like, Whoa, slow down. Think about this. Like, let's plan this out. When are, where are airline tickets going to be cheap? Like, slow down. Um, and on the other hand, I budge her more than she otherwise would have if she were left to her own devices. So entrepreneurs, um, context matters for the ability of some people to experiment and express themselves. I agree. It's a good point. Listen, everybody can't have the entrepreneurial mindset in the house. You know, everyone cannot be willing to jump off. You know, entrepreneurs are willing to jump off the cliff and literally sprout wings on the way down. Someone has to be the governor in the house. That's great advice. You know, you get a lot of entrepreneurs who he wants to run headlong and not not to be gender biased. Or and she may be like, hey, slow down. <laughs> and sometimes you find the entrepreneurs getting frustrated in that. So how would you tell an entrepreneur to navigate when the 
their partner, their spouse, significant ever, whatever the situation is, maybe serving as the governor in their life. How do you, how would you advise them navigate that? First of all, subtract out from the conversation the particular idea. So mm. pull that out of this conversation between spouses. Who do you want to be for each other? Wow. My wife and I are super clear that the role that I serve for her is that I'm coming up with wild ideas and experimenting and who knows where it could lead. And the role she serves for me is to keep me grounded. So when I have a failure, she's sitting there saying, I know you didn't expect this, but dinner's still on the table. Like we're just, we're, everything's going to be fine. Let's calm down a little bit. Um, so who do you want to be for each other? That's not about the next venture. That's more about human fulfillment. Wow. Inside of that context, maybe the answer is, hey, I think that I have an experiment that I could see coming up. And here's what the idea looks like. You have the, does our relationship have the room for mm. me to pursue some crazy things? At least put the time to pursue them. That to me is the start of the conversation. It's not about the idea. It's about the marriage. So start with the marriage. And then if it proceeds there, contemplate the idea. Wow, that's great advice. That's great advice. Wait, I've, I've talked to you off today. What's next, Dr. Ted, before, we, <laughs> before I let you go? What's next in the cards for you? I have, Curtis, over my career so far, done a terrible job of saying what's next and then actually having that be next. In other words, I don't really know. And even if I told you, I'm a hundred percent sure that whatever I would say is going to happen in five years will not happen. It's not going to unfold as I expect it to unfold. What I think might be next. I think maybe I have another startup in me, maybe, okay. but what I'm, what I assume is next, what I can foresee coming up next is that um, is trying to figure out with all of my other peers at Halt, how we can take this huge leap in education that you and I both know to our core is important, but hasn't delivered all of the promises that we said it would. It hasn't increased or decreased the income gap, right? There's a huge difference between people who get a college diploma and people who don't. Can't we take some of the skills we you and I teach and think about and learn in top business schools and provide them in other ways to people who can't go to business school and still lift them up. Halt is because we don't have tenure, because we're scrappy, even though we're really big, we are experimenting all the time. We are unbelievably entrepreneurial. Sometimes those, those uh, experiments fail. Sometimes students are the first to say, yeah, I saw that you tried something there. Don't do that again. Like that's not, that didn't work. Um, and I still think we have an opportunity as an institution and as an industry to do so much better than we have in the past that I think the next couple of years for me are going to focus on these big, huge, seemingly crazy leaps in education. This DBA that we're, that we're, that we launched a couple weeks ago, um, has been oversubscribed by about tenfold. In other words, we already have 10 times more applications than we have slots for. So total surprise during a global pandemic. It has been crazy. What that tells me is that mid career professionals are saying to everybody, I need to know more. And then how do we as educators make sure that what do we help, what do we help them learn? And how do we make sure that we deliver on the promises and we give them the skills they need to achieve this for greater, greater impact? That's my next immediate challenge. I think there are four or five more like that stacked up right behind them that I and my peers hope to consider and hopefully address and offer in the next couple of years. I'm having a, I'm having a blast right now. And I think it's, I think I'm doing good work. I think I'm helping people. Um, I think my wife still has tolerance for this particular crazy set of experiments. So I think this is where I'm going to stick for a little while. I think that I think you should, man. You know, you've had a good run. 
I wish you much continued success. Thank you for taking time out your business schedule to talk to us today and share your infinite wisdom. You did not disappoint, so maybe you will re- <laughs> reevaluate my judgment call. Uh, you need a replay, but uh, you Cur- gave Curtis. Let me, pull, let me play this back at you. The reason that I'm doing this with you right now is because if my goal is to impact entrepreneurs, you're doing it. You are the platform through which I can impact entrepreneurs. So what you have just done in the last little bit is help me come closer to my life's goals. Thank you very much for allowing me to do this. If you also can't tell from my tone of voice and from my expression, I love this stuff. So what you've also done is given me an opportunity in the last little while to just talk about stuff that I love and hopefully have an impact on people to do things that I think would be great for the planet. Thank you. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it, brother. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna belabor it. I'm sure that our listenership would get a lot out of this. And thank you again for sharing your life lessons and some, uh, some, some, some great food for thought and recommendations. I appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks, Ted. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Business Theologist Podcast. Please share, subscribe and rate this podcast so others can find us too. If you would like to connect with me, please use the links in the show notes of this episode. Please feel free to connect with me on social media as well. I welcome the opportunity to connect and hear from you. Have a blessed week. Until next time.